All right, if you have looked at the lectionary readings today, you'll notice a couple of, well, at least one interesting thing. The first reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 3. But they do something really interesting and something I do not like. I don't know why they did this, but they did this. 1 Samuel chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 first. So 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim, that he could not see. Now, let's stop right here. The lectionary leaves out verse 1 and 2. Now, that's not completely out of the ordinary, but they go a step further, which is somewhat perplexing to me. Verse 3, And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, they leave all of that out. They only add this phrase, Samuel was laid down to sleep. (laughs) So verse 1 and 2 is left out. Most of verse 3 is left out, except for the phrase, Samuel was, in fact, the way it reads in the Magnificat, Samuel was sleeping, right? And then they have Samuel was sleeping in the temple, which is, uh, so they kind of take part part of verse three and put the, that phrase together, but they leave most of it out. And I don't know why all of that is left out. I it, it drives me crazy. Now, maybe at some point they'll come back and pick that up in another lectionary reading. Maybe they they just want that part here. I don't know, but they leave the rest of that out. So we're going to read all of verse 3, and then we're going to read everything they have in the lectionary, and then we'll see what part jumps out at you, and then we'll we'll see where we can go. So let's let's read all of verse 3. Well, we will we'll, yeah, we'll just read verse 3. And then we'll read everything they have here. So, the lectionary reading for today. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, this is the second Sunday in ordinary time. Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. And the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest, called, calledest me. And he said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose, went to Eli and said, here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Verse seven, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. They want us to go all the way down to verse 10. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he call thee, if he call thee, thou should say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. I want us to read verse 10. And the Lord came and stood and called at, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak, for thy servant heareth. Then they want us to skip all, everything else, and they want us to go down to verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. All right, that's where they want us to stop. Now, 
Because it's a lectionary reading, we, on one hand, what we should do is just read all the other readings and try to figure out what, what they're trying to accomplish. But we're not going to do that in the first hour, right? In the first hour, we're going to just ignore all the other readings and we're going to just take 1 Samuel 3 apart from everything else and just try to say what, what should jump out at us in the reading for today in 1 Samuel chapter 3. So if you look at the text, I th- I'm assuming... One specific thing may jump out, but what, what, what should jump out? I think, I think I'll just, I'll just go ahead and answer it. I think for most people, what will probably jump out is what Eli tells Samuel that he should say when God speaks. And what did he tell him to say? Yeah, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. I think that's probably where most, at least, I can't speak for people in the pew. I think it's where most pastors would run, right? And, say, and you could preach, this is how we should respond to the word of God, right? God may not speak in an open revelation like that today. He speaks through his word. But every time we read his word, we should say, Lord, speak your servant. Because one, we're telling, we're, we're, we're like, God, we're willing to hear you. We understand what we are. We are a servant and we're listening. Right? That's, that's, I mean, you could preach that. You could, you could probably come up with three points. You can make it great, wonderful. Maybe the uh, other thing that may jump out is that how like Eli did not immediately realize that it was God speaking. It took three times for Eli to realize it was God speaking. Maybe that would jump out. Is there anything else in that section that jumps out at you in, in this section of 1 Samuel 3? Anything else? Okay, no open vision. What verse is that? A verse one. Okay, well, if we're just looking at the lectionary reading, okay, we're just looking at the lectionary reading. Okay, maybe. Okay. All right. I think that's kind of because of the arrangement for the mom to have the child she gave him to the Lord, right? So I think that kind of fits that. So I think maybe there's some interesting things, but I think you can see where most people would kind of, would kind of jump at it. Now, for me, when I read it, I, I couldn't just do what the lectionary told me to do and skip all of verse 3. I could not do that, right? I mean, like, they wanted me to skip everything except that, he's, he was, that Samuel, uh, as they put it, Samuel was laid, laid down to sleep in the temple. And I'm like, ah, that, oh, I, can't, I can't skip the part before it. So the part before it is the part that I want to look at because, to me, that's the most fascinating part. And it's the phrase at the beginning of verse 3. What is the phrase at the beginning of verse 3? And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple. Another translation puts it this way. Um, If I can find it. Before, it says, uh, one day Eli, whose eyesight was falling, or failing, was lying down in his usual place before the lamp of God had gone out. So I think he's laying down before it went out. The King James seems to indicate that it came past, or, and ere the lamp of God went out in the temple. How does the NIV? Or had not yet gone out. Had not yet gone out. So, so I, I don't know, uh, but it's, it's just weird. Like, I didn't even realize at first that there was a translation issue. So the King, the King James seems to read stating it what way? That it seemingly indicate that it went out, right? 
Okay, and before it went out. I would think so, but the, but, the, but the main thing is at least that phrase jumped out at me because it seems to indicate that the lamp is going to go out, right? Before it went out is indicating that it's going to go out, right? Or that, like, why is it going out? What lamp are they referring to, right? Like, like I've, got, I've got some questions. In fact, I'm going to look at it, if I look at it in a number of translations, let's just look at it in a number of translations. Because I think, do I... Well, yeah, that's, that's, that raises some questions, does it not? Okay, that's what immediately jumped out at me. So let's look at this. The menorah? Yeah, let's, I'm going to look at uh, Bible Hub. Okay, because um, I got all the English translations. New International, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. New Living Translation, lamp of God had not yet gone out. Uh, the English Standard, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The Berean standard, before the lamp of God had gone out. So it all seems to indicate the time is coming that it's going to go out, right? Right? Um, which is kind of like, so when, when does the lamp go out? When, when, does, it, when does it go out? What, what are they referring to here? Um, I'm going to look at it, just a couple of commentaries really quick. Ere the lamp of God went, went out, uh, there, they says there's a Talmud comment here of singular interest and beauty. Uh, that it says on, then it goes through a lot of things here, um, but well, they talk about this rabbi, they go through a long history here, so it's not going to give us, yeah, that's not helping us in any way. Uh, <laughs> it, that's not going to help us at all. I thought they were going to offer us something very interesting there, but I, I, not very helpful. Okay, That commentary, they go through a lot of history, but it's not going to really get us to where we want to go. Um, Let's go to another commentary. They ignore it. Okay. Uh, this, another commentary says this. This passage should be rendered thus. So they're going to offer a different translation. And it came to pass at that time that Eli was sleeping in his place. And his eyes had begun to grow dim. He could not see. And the lamp of God was not yet gone out. And Samuel was sleeping in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Right, so they they don't really offer they don't really offer any explanation. They just kind of offer their own translation. Um, yeah, it sounds very similar. So I don't know why. The, the, hey, it should be translated this way. That kind of sounds like all the rest of them. Uh, another one says, "Ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, the temple seems to have become the established designation of the tabernacle, and the time indicated was towards the morning uh, twilight, as the lamps." were extinguished at sunrise. So they are saying that th- this is no big deal, that these were lamps that were, that, yeah, that this was a time frame and that there's no big deal. Um, this one, ere the lamp of God went out, before the lights of the golden candlestick were put out in the night season or before the morning when they were put out as they were lighted in the evening. So they're acting as if there, there's... No big deal that they, 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 these are, I guess, lamps that were put out at a certain time. Well, I, well that's, I know this is where it's going to get a little confusing, but, but we'll, we'll, I will read a couple of commentaries. Uh, at Gill's exposition, and ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, the tabernacle, so-called lamp, is put for the lamps and the candlestick and the tabernacle, which were lighted every evening and burnt till morning, 
By that time, some of them at least usually went out. Only it is said the western lamp never went out. Now, the reason why this is observed is to show that it was the night before morning that the following transaction was some was, some by this lamp understood the lamp of prophecy. Okay, well, then they go on and offer a lot of other explanations. So some of these commentaries are like, look, this is no big deal. It's just explaining that it's time frame. It's in the night. It's in the nighttime before the lamp goes out because at some point the lamps would go out and then you light them in the morning. Okay, or, or, yeah, for the evening. And so they act like it's no big deal. But I've always been taught it's an extremely big deal. I've always been taught this is a huge deal. That like, like everyone should stop when they read that and go, whoa, there, this is not just a, this is not signifying a time. This is signifying the spiritual condition of the entire nation. So what we're, so we've got two hypotheses that this is just establishing a time. Don't worry about it. No big deal. Or we've got a hypothesis. This is huge. This is significant. And that any good Bible student should stop right here and go, the lamp went out. Whoa, what is happening? Now, I, the, the, the danger here, and this is always the danger in preaching, if you want to preach a sermon, which one are you going to go with? You're going to go with, this is a big deal, and there's spiritual symbolism here, and it's a huge deal. Because how do you preach that? Oh, this is just the middle of the night. Samuel was sleeping. God speaks to him. Now, now if you believe God is still speaking to people outside of the Bible, you can make a big deal out of it, right? If you don't believe God is speaking outside of the Bible, then you would simply turn it into a sermon about, hey, when you read your Bible, say, God, I'm listening. I'm your servant. Okay, you can do something with that. But so there's a, I guess there's a tendency. We could ignore the lamp issue, but I think we have to at least address it. I think we have to at least address it. So is it significant or not? So I'm going to put forth, I'm going to, so we've got two basic hypotheses, right? It's just giving us a time reference or it's a big deal. What I'm going to do is I'm going to at least, uh, uh, I'm going to try to argue that maybe it is a big deal. I'm going to put maybe. I'm going to put maybe with a question mark. And I'm going to try to establish textually that maybe something is going on here textually that's more than just offering a timestamp. All right? So let's go back to verse 1. See, this is only, sometimes this is the problem with lectionary readings, right? Because it starts... It ignores all of this, but I think we have to go back. So look at verse 1. I'm going to have you work with me here and see if we can figure this out. Look at verse 1, and what, what, what significant things do you see in verse 1? Just don't try to interpret it. Just do observation. What observations do you make of verse 1 that, you, that would be significant if you were taking notes on it? Okay, all right. So, so we, have something, we have something going on, right? And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. It says precious in the King James. The NIV says what? Was rare. Uh, this text uh, says the boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. All right. So immediately the text is offering what? 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 Just from an observation, what is it offering? 
A spiritual condition. It's talking about a spiritual condition, right? Okay, so I think, I think that's the first clue. But there's a second phrase in that verse. So the first one is that the word of the Lord is rare or that it's precious. Second, not many visions. There's no, oh, and the King James says, there was no open vision. This text says, uh, uh, prophetic visions were not widespread. So in other words, there's not, there's not like lots of visions happening. God is not speaking. God is not revealing himself. That to me is giving us a textually. Now I'm arguing textually that the, the text is trying to establish in our minds something is not, something is going on spiritually in the area, right? Okay. There's there quietness. God is, it's a silent time. What does verse two do, say? Right? When Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. Now that's kind of interesting, right? Now, they, now are they re- they're referring to a physical condition, are they not? They are offering a physical condition, but it does seem like an interesting place to put that. Do we need to know that Eli can't see? I mean, the, the, the next part of the narrative is not about him not being able to see, right? He, it's not like he couldn't see stuff. Like, it's like it's offering a bit of information that seems a little bit odd from a narrative, right? Like, I don't really need to know that he can't see. You would think it would be more interesting if he couldn't hear, right? But he hears Samuel, and he tells Samuel what to do. But we know in the narrative, it takes him how many times before he sees or understands what's going on? Three times. So then you could argue that is the text offering that he could not see and there's kind of like a double meaning? He couldn't see physically? He can't see very well? And he was the spiritual leader. Yeah, he's a spiritual leader. Right, right. I, I don't know if that's what it's doing, but clearly the first part is, do, is offering a spiritual condition, Right. That seems to be offering a spiritual condition, possibly. I'm not being dogmatic. I'm not being dogmatic. And then what does the next verse say? Verse three, yes. And the lamp of God, and ere the lamp, or before the lamp of God, went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, Samuel was laid down to sleep. Now it mentions the lamp possibly going out. Now, you could just say, oh, this is just a timestamp. We don't need to read any more into it. But others spend a lot of time on this. So let me just give you some, we're going to just spend, and we'll see if we agree or disagree with this, okay? I, I just, I think, my mind tells me it's something significant. So just so that we know. According to the instructions given by God to Moses, look at everyone, look at Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 through 21. You read it, I'm not going to tell you anything. You tell me what you find. Exodus 27, 20 through 21. You tell me what you see. 27, 20 through 21 are the verses. Exodus 27, 20 through 21. Tell me if you see anything. Okay. 
All right. So that the lamp is to, right? So it's supposed to not go out, right? That's how most understand it, right? In fact, according to one source, according to the instructions given by God to Moses in Exodus 27, 20 through 21, the lamp or menorah in the tabernacle temple was meant to be kept continually lit. Then they quote, you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening unto morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Well, they are saying it's supposed to be continual. Well, I understand, but I'm just saying this is how it's typically understood by most. And it says, uh, and they, they're de- listen to the phrase, the, the lamp to burn continually. Everybody see that? Everybody see it? Continually during a time frame? Right. Hours a day, right. Right. So there's a little bit of disagreement, but they're going with the idea, hey, it was supposed to be burning continually, so there should have been no before the time it burnt out because there should have been no going out. Right. Oh, I know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you want to handle But and so, right. So you can then go back to Samuel and how can we understand it? Well, this is before the Lord, before the lamp went out, meaning... It was in the middle of the night and it had not yet become morning because in the morning it goes out, right? So I don't know. Is it supposed to be continual? Obviously, one source says it is. Other sources say, may look at it differently. Okay. I, well, I know, but that's frustrating. Now, they do add this paragraph, though. This command specified that the lamp should be kept burning. Now, listen, here we go. From evening until morning. symbolizing the perpetual presence and guidance of God among his people. The priests, specifically Aaron and his sons, were responsible for maintaining and tending to the lampstand to the ensure... Now, but then look at how they say this, that the light never went out. So even within one little thing, is it just never go out between evening and morning or never go out ever? If it can go out in the morning, then 1 Samuel 3 is not saying anything significant, right? Okay, it's before the lamp goes out. Well, it goes out every morning. And then the next night, you make sure, someone is to make sure it goes, it continues all night. So then it going out in the morning would be no big deal. So is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? I don't know. Now you can see, you can see why there, I, I guarantee you there's millions of sermons on this about the lamp going out. I guarantee you, I could probably find Countless one, and they're going to make it a huge deal. What we're trying to do is try to establish if it is or if it isn't. But hang on, I why well, grab a Bible dictionary and let's see. Does it say? Do, do what? Is that, what does it say? What does it say? Was it, did it just offer the description of it? Another uh, tabernacle, which we're supposed to be working on. So this fits with it, okay. On the second side of the holy place were seven lamps, golden lampstands, candlesticks, and fire 
That's it. Okay, so that doesn't help us. That doesn't help us. It offers... Okay, and what do you... Anything there? Goes to the tabernacle, okay. So I don't know if that helps. You would think so. Okay, right. You would, you would make an argument there, right? So... Exactly. I mean, I guess they could have kept something burning, but yeah, you would think it would have went out. Now, it may be the fact that once it was set up, it was supposed to be keep burning. So, I don't know. So, here, this is their concluding paragraph. Are you ready? Therefore, when it is mentioned in 1 Samuel 3, 3, that the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord. Now, you ready? Here we go. This is, this is their conclusion. It signifies a departure from the prescribed duty of keeping the lamp continually lit and reflects a spiritual decline and neglect within the religious leadership of that time. They think it is, they think it is significant. They think that it is. Now, my, I will argue textually, the text seems to be indicating there is a spiritual decline or something's going on at the time, right? Verse 1 offers two observations. Two, I don't know how we want to understand Eli not being able to see, but it seems it could possibly have two ideas, right? I mean, isn't it Eli's sons who are really, really corrupt? Right? Hophnius and Phinehas, right? I mean, so I think we can, I think there is something to him being somewhat spiritually blind. Right? And then the next verse, all of a sudden mentions the lamp. Now, does verse 3 need to offer, I mean, does it need to offer us a time? I mean, like, on one hand, you could argue, okay, well, good writing, it's offering context, right? Why is Samuel asleep? It's in the middle of the night, before the lamp goes out, because the lamp's supposed to go out in the morning, all right? So then, like, you could argue it's not, it's not offering anything significant, but the text seems to be, ah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. So let's... I'm going to read from a, a, a different source or a different entry. You ready? In 1 Samuel 3, 3, it is mentioned that the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. This event carries several symbolic and theological significance. This source is about to give me a list of like, this is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Like something, this is like, this is supposed to get you to go, whoa, the lamp is going to go out? Look, what is happening? And they think that this has theological significance and spiritual symbolic significance. They offer, you ready? One, two, three, four. They offer four. Four. All right, are you ready? Here we go, number one. Spiritual darkness. The extinguishing of the lamp symbolizes a period of spiritual darkness or decline. In the Bible, light often represents the presence of God, truth, and guidance. When the lamp goes out, It symbolized a time when the people or the religious leaders have turned away from God 
or neglected their spiritual responsibilities. So, the, 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 we've got two individuals in, this, in the narrative, right? Eli Samuel. What does the text, the narrative say about Samuel? Now, that's Eli. What does it say about Samuel? Keep. He did not yet know the Lord. All right. That would show, that would show a little bit of spiritual darkness in him, right? He doesn't know the Lord. Well, he's listening to a voice, right? But I'm saying, I'm just saying it just shows that his spiritual condition, he doesn't know the Lord. I mean, the text specifically says that, right? Now, the text does not offer us a lot of spiritual insight about Eli and that narrative, right? So here's what I want you to do. Let's just try this. Go, where is the first place Eli is mentioned in 1 Samuel? Find the first reference to Eli in 1 Samuel. First, first Samuel chapter one, verse three. What is happening in the first mention of Eli? He has two sons. Those two sons are? Hophni and Phinehas. Okay, priest of the Lord was there. Does it offer anything about his character, anything about Eli's spiritual condition in that first mention? I don't think it does in the first verse, but in that section around it, does it describe anything about Eli, describe anything about his sons? Yeah, yeah, he sees that she's speaking. Okay, so he sees a woman who has come where? She's come to the temple, right? Okay, or the tabernacle, right? I think it's being called a temple. Temple hasn't been built yet, right? Or has it been built? Is it the temple or the tabernacle? Remember sometimes, the house of the Lord, right? I don't know, is it? Yeah, figure out the time reference. It's the temple, right? Temple? Okay. How, how, how do you know? <laughs> okay. No, no, it's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I, I, I'm challenging you to know, the, make sure you got the Bible in chronological order, right? Okay. Is it before? So this is the tabernacle. Okay. Uh, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the temple's not built till Solomon. No. Yeah. David doesn't build it till Solomon. Okay. All right. So we're talking tabernacle. Okay. So when it, when it refers to Hannah, because y'all are talking about Hannah who is moving her mouth and Eli notices it, right? Okay. Now, when, when it says that Hannah is coming to the tabernacle slash temple, right? Does it describe in 1 Samuel chapter 1 why she's coming, what she's doing, why she's, does it talks about her, her, when she starts moving her mouth, does it give us a description of what she's doing, what she's trying to do? She's it. So she is there, she's, okay, she's praying, she's upset, she's concerned, she's pouring her heart out to God, and what does the text say that Eli does in 1 Samuel 1? He marks her mouth. Eli perceives her to be drunk. He's the spiritual, what is Eli? 
He's the priest. Hey, is he chief priest, high priest? How is he described? Look at, look at the descriptions of him in 1 Samuel. Okay. Grab your Bible dictionaries real quick. Look up an entry for Eli. See how, it's, how he's described. Let's make sure we know, because we want to be fair here, right? We want to be fair. So we're going to let the text, before we get to 1 Samuel 3, we want the text to give us everything we can learn about Eli. Okay, he's a priest, okay. All right, judge and high priest. He has, he seems to serve two roles here, judge and high priest. Judge seems to indicate what role? He's going to have some wisdom to have some kind of discernment, right? And the first time we see him discerning something, he is wrong in his discernment, right? He discerns that a woman who's literally praying and crying out to God is drunk, okay? That's not great discernment. That's not great discernment as a judge. That's not great discernment as a priest, Oh, what does it say? Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, so they... All right, so, so they say great priest, bad father. Right, so I don't know. I, do, do you think a religious leader should be able to know the difference between a woman praying and a woman being drunk? I don't, I, I oh. Okay, and what, and what does it say? Okay, and, and uh, is there anything else said about Eli as far as his failure, or it says anything about his sons in chapter one? Does it say anything about uh, his two sons in chapter one? Talk about how bad they're being in chapter one. Or is it chapter two where it, we find out how bad they're being? Okay, that's where the two sons are. Chapter two, verse 12. Okay, yeah, because Hannah is still praying in chapter two, right? Oh, yeah, that's her prayer. Okay, yeah. Yeah, now, okay, yeah, here we go. And verse, I'm glad, that's a great one to, to, to point out. Uh, and now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that, and they start saying what they were doing. And they, they're doing everything they're not supposed to do, right? And we don't know. And Eli seems to be nowhere to do anything about it. Now, he even, well, he knows there's something going on because look at verse 23, right? In fact, verse 22, now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle to the congregation. They were doing what? Oh, we can be blunt. There's no children present. They're having sex. With, it sounds like they're having sex with the women who comes to the temple. How does the NIV translate verse 22? They slept with the women who came to the... Okay, and he know, Eli knows what they're doing. Now, I'm, look, I understand being a lax father, but he's allowing the worship of God to be corrupted. That, to me, is not a pious priest. He, it's one thing to go, 
Like, it's one thing to say, all right, hey, hey, sons, come here. Like, like he could have worked this out. Hey, guys, come here, come here. Right, that's what, I, that's what I was getting ready to say. It's one thing he could have came with that. Look, guys, look, you're corrupting the worship of God. If y'all want to sleep with women and, they're, and it's a consensual thing and you're not abusing them, go do it. I'm, just not, I'm not going to say anything to anybody, but you just can't be priest anymore, right? Hey, we don't have to make it a big scandal. You just go, you just go. But the fact that he allows them to do this, still serve, and not only that, I mean, they're corrupting everything. They're corrupting the sacrifice. They're corrupting everything. about. And he, that's not a pious priest. Because it's one thing to protect your kids. But in protecting his kids, he could also try to protect what? The worship of God, right? Does, does everyone understand that? We, we can all relate to wanting to protect our kids, can we not? Can we can all relate to that, right? But... He could have pulled off both. He could have protected his kids and protected the worship of God. He could have, he could have accomplished both and he did not. I, I'm going to argue that everything from chapter one to chapter three paints a picture of spiritual darkness in the air. You've got, look, you've got what, you've got what his sons are doing, right? Yes. Is that not bad? Right. But is that not bad? All right. So we can all agree that what his sons are doing are bad. Eli's approach to it seems pretty weak. Do you not agree? I mean, he talked to them. Right. I mean, I'm just saying it's one thing to go, hey, guys, either you got to stop this. We got to make it right. But he, he allowed them to continue to corrupt the, the worship. And like, he could have just said, look, you, you can be doing all the sin you want, but you're not touching anything. What were they doing with the sacrifice? Yeah, they're not even, they're taking something they're not even supposed to take. That's completely corrupting. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're showing selfishness. So he does nothing to protect the worship. So between Eli's actions or inaction, between the son's corrupting of the worship, how would you describe the time in 1 Samuel and Eli's inability to know a woman is praying? I think from chapter 1 and chapter 2, couldn't you not agree that we see a time of great spiritual darkness? Right, okay, yeah, well, there you go. Right, and that was that's First Samuel two twenty five, thirty five. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine, uh, mine anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's office. Offices that, that I may eat a piece of bread. I mean, clearly, something is not good, right? There... Yeah, hey, I'm going to take the priesthood from your family. So clearly, the priesthood is corrupted, and I think that includes Eli. Spiritual darkness is prevalent. And I think, so here's how I, this is, I'm, I'm going to make, a, I'm gonna make a, a, a hermeneutical argument, and I could be wrong here. Chapters 1 and 2 establishes in action the spiritual condition of the day. 
chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3, it establishes or speaks of the spiritual condition symbolically. And, and, and when I say symbolically, is you have, you have two descriptions of the situation in verse 1. What are they? The word of God is precious. Remember in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter three, and there's no open vision, really. Or there's very few open visions. Eli's blind. And in 3, the lamp goes out. I, I'm going to argue all, through, all of that, even, even if the lamp is supposed to go out, even if you can make an argument that the lamp is it's perfectly okay for it to go out in the morning, I still think it's being utilized in somewhat of a symbolic way. I could be wrong. But I think all of this shows spiritual darkness. Right? I, I, I think it does. That's just my, that's my, oh, my argument. That, that, now, well, well, I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of these because I, I want to make a, a point about the spiritual darkness, but we're, you know, at 1047, we're going to run out of time. Let's go to the second point that they make. So the first thing is they believe all of this is symbolic of spiritual darkness, all right? And that they're neglecting their spiritual responsibilities. That and I, clearly the spiritual leaders are neglecting their spiritual responsibility because Eli is clearly neglecting his responsibility. Right? He's not even protecting the sacrifice or worship of God. And, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I don't know why the Bible dictionary is like Eli's a great guy. He, he's the best priest you can find. I mean, like I don't know. Like I mean, I, I'm this. That's great that the dictionary is so merciful, but I don't. God seems not so happy with the situation. All right. So the second symbolic thing they say. So first is spiritual darkness. Second, symbol of God's presence. The lamp mentioned in the verse is likely referring to the lampstand, also known as the menorah that was placed in the tabernacle temple. Now listen, this is, these are the words. The continual burning lamp on the lampstand stand, represented the continuous presence of God among his people. So when the lamp went out, it signified a temporary absence, withdrawal of God's presence, and his favor. Now, they say the lamp going out symbolizes this. Chapter 3, verse 1 dogmatically asserts it. God is not speaking to the people. So that, that somehow his presence, his, his revelation, put it this way, at least his revelation has been withdrawn. God is not speaking and who is speaking for him? Eli, what are the son's names? Hophni and Phinehas, and those are not really speaking anything good. Eli seems confused, right? He accuses a woman of being drunk who's not drunk, and the other the sons are running around corrupting the worship. <laughs> well, I don't, maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, I think he couldn't see her. Maybe not physically or spiritually. I think that, that maybe, maybe that's the issue, right? But the point, he could see enough that her mouth was moving, right? So, yeah, you know, so, but uh, I think that, I think there's a little bit of truth to this, Right? Spiritual darkness, God's presence. And then three, a call to action. The extinguishing of the lamp serves as a catalyst 
for action and change. In the subsequent verses, we see that God speaks to Samuel, calling him to be a prophet and to bring about spiritual renewal among the people of Israel. The lamp going out may may be seen as divine invitation for Samuel to step up and fulfill his role and restoring spiritual light and guidance to the nation. And I think that's exactly what's going on in the text. Sarah did a great job pointing out that where God says, hey, I'm going to raise up a different, a different priest. You're, you're going to be removed from it. So the lamp going out serves as a transition, right? Here's Eli, spiritual darkness. God's presence is withdrawn. Now that's a call for action, right? Now who's got to act? God. Now, typically we preach the call to action is us, okay? But God has to step in here, right? So God wakes up a little boy and he's going to call him and now he's going to, in a sense, be the one to restore that spiritual light out of this time of darkness so that the the light going out is kind of symbolic of of a transition and a call to action. At least then, I'm not saying... I'm not saying it's perfect, but the narrative definitely call the narrative points to all of this, right? Even if the lamp going out, we could debate all day whether the lamp, and I'm glad that y'all, I'm, I'm glad that you guys are willing to go, well, I'm not so sure if that's wrong that the lamp goes out. I'm glad that you're doing that. I will argue that the narrative from chapter one to chapter three, all these points are true of the narrative, right? The narrative points that there's, this is a time of spiritual darkness. It's a, clearly God's presence, something is going on. And clearly, a, a call to action needs to take place. And then they say, number four, a foreshadowing. The event of the lamp going out foreshadows the spiritual condition of Israel at that time. It sets the stage for the narrative that follows where the corruption and unfaithfulness of the religious leaders are exposed and God raises up Samuel as a faithful prophet and judge. It highlights the renewal and reformation within the religious community. Overall, the significance of the lamp going out in 1 Samuel 3.3 emphasizes the spiritual condition of the people and serves as a call for renewal both individually and collectively and their relationship with God. They seem to go with a very much that there's something going on here. Now, I will argue, so let me just state it again. I I think, I don't know if, I I think, I could be wrong. I think all three, I think all three of us agree that, hmm, I don't know if we can say dogmatically about the lamp, right? Right? Because, and we can at least say theologically, even amongst the commentaries, there seems to be disagreements, right? Hey, the lamp's supposed to go on. Well, it doesn't always have to go. I mean, it's supposed to go out. Like, they don't seem to know. But I can say without any apology that if I read 1 Samuel 1, and I know we just briefly grabbed parts of it, 1 Samuel 2, and then go to 1 Samuel 3, all of those points are clearly identified clearly identified. One and two gives us specific actions, and three seems to switch to kind of a more symbolic approach, right? Hey, the word of God was precious. It's rare. Well, what's, why was it so rare? Don't you have priests? Huh. 
The priests seem to be a little busy, right? Okay, not doing everything other than what they're supposed to. Okay, all right. Wait, there's no open vision. Well, that seems to demonstrate that God's not is present. God has somehow withdrawn His presence. He's not giving revelation. The uh, Eli's blind. I think that's that's in two ways. I believe he's blind. I think he's not, he's not willing to do what needs to be done. His sons are completely blind, right? They're completely blind. And then, and then uh, I, so I think all of this, and there's obviously a, a foreshadowing of the situation. There's a call to action. And then clearly God himself steps in in chapter two and says, hey, this priesthood's over. There's going to be a new one. And God steps in. And then there's the contrast between Samuel and Eli. And so I think, I think there's a little bit to this. Now, the question then is this. I think really, I, th- I think we can establish that there, there's something significant here. The, the, obviously, the lectionary is not wanting us to go there. And you may, you may see why the lectionary avoided all of that. Because they know if they mention that, anyone who's really paying attention would have to spend an hour working on it. And that's not what they wanted us to work on. They wanted us to work on Samuel's sleep in the temple and then the narrative of the hearing, but hey, did you call me? Go back to sleep. Hey, did you call me? Go back to sleep. Did you call me? Hey, God may be the one talking to you. So when he says something, then do this, right? That's what the lectionary wants us to pull. Why do they want us to figure that out? We'll probably have to look at the other readings in the next hour. But it does raise the question about spiritual darkness amongst God's people, Right? amongst, uh, for us. So I, I think then we are left with kind of a theological question or a practical question. I think historically, the church tends to always focus on spiritual darkness where? Where does the church historically focus when we talk about spiritual darkness? Where do we tend to focus on? Out there. Outside the church. And spiritual darkness outside the church, I'm going to, I'm going to, I know this may sound heretical. Spiritual darkness outside the church, I don't think has ever been the threat or danger to the church. Spiritual darkness outside the church, to me, is more of an opportunity for the church. It's not a hindrance to the church. It's far easier for your light to shine bright when it's darker outside, right? So it's, uh, we have a greater chance to go to the world going, hey, look around, okay? That, your house is on fire. It's dark. It's burning down. Here's some light, right? For some reason, we're always afraid of the spiritual darkness in the world, and we think we have to run out there and try to fix it and change it. But you can't change spiritual darkness in the culture until... Well, you gotta, the individuals have to become saved, right? I think it's always the problem. We want to go fix spiritual darkness in the culture by passing laws, ban, and that never works. It can only be fixed by, by taking light to the individual. But the real problem is the spiritual darkness that happens inside the church. Inside the church. And I will argue that we typically miss the spiritual darkness that happens where? Inside. Inside you, me, inside us, and inside the church. And I think we have to become better at seeing the spiritual darkness in us and ourselves. And why we don't see it, I don't know. It's, it's, 
Maybe because we are so preoccupied with everyone else. Maybe we are, maybe, maybe we have, you know, it's, it's been said, and I think there's some truth to it. Sometimes the sin that we are the most condemning of, the, the sin that we, we speak the strongest about, we condemn, we hate, we have so-called righteous indignation towards, sometimes that's projection. That hatred signifies something going on and within us. And that's happened so many times. You can have people who like yell and scream about homosexuality only to find out that they are homosexual or struggle with homosexuality. Sometimes those who speak the strongest against, sometimes they're even in ministries against homosexuality and then five years later they come out as being, and you're like, they were fighting against what? Themselves. And you can't fight against yourself until you first what? Acknowledging yourself. You can't, what do we always say in war? Know thy enemy. Well, guess who the enemy is? It's us. It's us, right? The the greatest fear we should have is fear of self. I talked about this at the end of 2023 on the podcast and said I was going to mention it a lot in 2024. Fear God and fear self. Those are the two fears that must be prominent in our life. We have to fear God because, well, he's God, but we have to fear self. The greatest thing, the greatest thing we should fear is us. We're the greatest problem. And if you think about it, our, our heart, our, the human heart is a spiritual darkness factory. It just pumps out spiritual darkness. You know why? The heart is deceitful above all all things, and desperately wicked. The a, Spiritual darkness is, is deception, it's blindness. We, 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 are, we blind ourselves. We can't see it. And I think sometimes we have to be able to see where are we spiritually blinded? Where, where are we spiritually blinded? Where, where do we find ourselves in a spiritual situation? I'm going to go back to my notes here. When do we find ourselves, and we're out of time, where do we find ourselves, right, and spiritual darkness? Where do we find ourselves where God's presence may have somehow, his kind of a special presence is gone, where there's a call to action, and where really our, ourselves, our lives are foreshadowing the spiritual path that we're on. Sometimes we can't see that our own lives are screaming at us where we're headed spiritually. We can't see it. Sometimes we think we're okay. Maybe sometimes we can see that we're headed there, but we've got to be willing to admit it. We've got to see the spiritual darkness inside ourselves. Because over and over and over, all of Israel's spiritual problems always begin where? Internally, not external. We are so concerned about the external threat. We're the threat. We're the threat. So, you can take that as, as however you want about the light, the candle, but um, I think that the text itself demonstrates Israel was in a mess, spiritually speaking. God himself gives commentary on it in 1 Samuel 2. Is that 1 Samuel 2, 35 is where God gives the, he, he gives the commentary. And he's like, this is done. I'm done with this. New priest is coming. I'm removing it from you. 
a faithful priest, right? Because you've been, uh, there's, spirit, there's spiritual blindness here. So, all right, we'll have to stop there. All right. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, help us be willing to see and admit the spiritual darkness in us and around us and be willing to have enough fear of you and fear of ourselves that we pursue spiritual light, not the darkness that sometimes we find ourselves in. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,